Hello and welcome to the Maximoo Theatre and Performance Podcast. Today we chat about our latest adventures at the theatre beyond Broadway. Enjoy the show. I hate when you surprise us with the start of the podcast. Because <laughs> I never know like which part of our chatter is going to end up on the air. That's part of the fun. I know. <laughs> okay, uh, let's start with introductions. We have a very full house today. Woohoo! This is my new experiment. We'll see how the editing goes with four people on the podcast. All right. Introductions. Oren. Uh, hi, I'm Oren Squire. I'm with New York Theater Review, and I will put this gum away. Oh, brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> Since I'm chewing it, I'm like, oh, this is going to make a sound. <laughs> Jose, who are you? Uh, Jose Solis. I'm the chief theater critic for Sage Buddy. And David? Uh, this is David Levy. I'm all over the internet, most recently at TalkingBroadway.com with a book review or two and at CastAlbums.org with some album reviews. All right. This is Lindsay. I'm the troubleshooter. We are I'm here so to talk about a plethora of plays we have seen recently in New York City. We have a very full agenda. So let's get started first with Kentucky Oren. Kentucky's playing at EST. It's by Leah Nenenko Winkler and directed by Morgan Gould. And we saw this last week, and I really enjoyed the play. It was a large production of 10 or more people, and it's about a lead character named Hiro, H-I-R-O, going back to visit her mixed-race family in Kentucky. Her mom's uh, not Vietnamese, Japanese. Japanese, and the dad is a bitter old white guy and who's also abusive uh, physically as well as verbally. And she goes back to save her sister from marrying someone she thinks is in a Christian cult. And you see her journey through going back home. It is this uh, trope that we're all familiar with. And Leah puts her own spin on it that makes it fun, delightful, and puts a stamp on her as a new voice in New York City. Uh, It's one of the best first plays I've seen this year. Uh, This play and Ironbound, I think, are very, very strong. And I say first play because it's not perfect. There are issues I have with it. But as a first play, it shows a voice. It shows dramaturgical skill and creating a new structure off of something we're familiar with. And it has a good ending and it makes you feel good. I can name some of the standout actors. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's being so bashful. Marcia Halfrack, who I went to new school with, was great as a grandma. Um, Amir, what's his name? Amir Wachterman was the cat, and that was hilarious. What do you mean you went to new school with her? She's like a million years older than you. No, no, she taught at new school. I was like, she's been a member of Ensemble Studio Theater longer than I've been alive. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) She taught at the new school, and I've never seen her act. I just know she's a very good teacher. So it's so wonderful when you see someone who's like a legendary teacher actually have to go up and do the thing that they teach, and they're good at it. Yeah, and she was great. Uh, And she managed to make some pretty bitter line shine. And the ensemble who played the bridesmaids were hilarious. And I can't wait to see what Leah has next. I don't have many comments about it besides that it was really enjoyable and i think people should see it it might get extended or did it already get extended it's been extended through may 22nd which i believe is a must close date for them but i very much hope that this production has another life i thought this play was so fantastic first of all it's a high energy play that's very very rare some of the other things we're going to talk about today are low energy plays Mm -hmm. and no shade either direction but there's something very exciting about a high energy play that you would be comfortable sending 
a tourist too. Yes. A, a new play in a small venue where, for, from my perspective, I would recommend this play to any visitor to the city. This was so much fun, but also very well-rounded. There were sad moments. There were funny moments. There were touching moments. I thought this play was so fantastic. I did not personally feel a false note in it. I understood every character's motivation. I understood what they were doing. I understood the decisions that they made. I found them complicated and distressing at times, but I loved this play so much. I thought it was a great balance of humor and sorrow. I just thought it was fantastic. So a couple of things I want to talk about with this play. One is that I thought it was really interesting experimentally, although I don't think 100% successful, in the way that it really... Um, it was willing to go to sort of different dramaturgical places with different mm-hmm. sorts of reality. Um, yeah. By which I mean, there the bridesmaids chorus also appears as like a singing Greek chorus. There is a cat played by a person who speaks, although not in a way like not two other characters, but but you, the audience, can hear its voice. Um, and the cat is sort of like a more comedic character. Um, there are. There are scenes that are very naturalistic. There are scenes that are much... uh, There are scenes of direct address to the audience. Uh, And it was really interesting to watch the story get told in a way that didn't feel bound in by, um, like, oh, it has to be this kind of play, so we can only do this kind of scene. Um, Some of those work better than others. Um, I, I didn't love... I thought that the cat in particular stuck out a little more than... I would have liked it to in mm. terms of the, the overall like texture and flow of the show. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that when I, before I saw this play, I had listened to an interview that Leah had done on the off and on podcast with Bernardo Cubria, one of our fellow folio group shows. And she had talked about the ways in which the show is somewhat based on her life. Um, although it's like inspired by events from her life, not like a, it's not an autobiographical show. Um, but because of that, I was a little bit nervous because she clearly in her own life had similar issues to her own sister becoming religious as the character does. And I was wondering what that would look like on stage. And what I think is really wonderful about this play is that it really, I feel like the character that is sort of the author stand in is the one who I think gets judged the harshest by the author as she's writing it. I think that um, it's very easy to, to watch this play and understand everyone's choices. And that includes Sophie, the sister, who I think you really you really do understand why she's making the choices she's making and it's hard to fault her for them. Uh, and as opposed to um, Kiro, the, the character who is sort of in the place of the author, uh, she makes these decisions, you understand why she's making them, but like, boy, do you want to sometimes just like run up on stage and shake her and tell her, no, stop, don't do it. Uh, and I thought that was... Uh, a really, really successful part of the play. I just want to take a slightly different spin on that. I thought it was based sort of on Leah's life. And we had something in school called the princess uh, dilemma. And this was come up. This was created by female playwriting teacher where you write about yourself and everyone wants you and desires you. Mm. And it felt they had a little bit of that where Hero's like, I'm so lonely. And everyone's like, I want to be with you here. Like every single person from the mother, the only person who didn't was a father. But all the friends, the boyfriend, the therapist, 
the daughter, the, the sister, everyone wanted to be with her, and yet she's so lonely. And as an audience, you sit there and go, well, look around you. Everyone's trying to be with you. Just reach out to any one of these 20,000 lifeboats or life preservers and do it. That's a minor quibble. Although I feel like that's a very real flaw that people have, where like when they feel lonely and isolated, they don't see the people who want them in their lives. Well, it was also all in the context of her being, of her going home. So the hero character lives in, is from Kentucky, but lives in New York now and has gone home. So even though those people in Kentucky love her and appreciate her and want to be around her, she's affirmatively rejecting them because she doesn't want that to be her community. She doesn't want to feel comfort and at ease in Kentucky. She's there to help her sister escape what she considers to be an unhealthy environment. Jose, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just wanted to follow on exactly what you were saying. It's like the uh, the premise, I thought, at first was very much out of, like, a Reese Witherspoon, like, Julia Roberts kind of rom-com. <laughs> you can absolutely see this being a movie. Yeah, yes. but I left without any of, like, the guilt when I eat, like, a dozen donuts. <laughs> but also, you know, like, that, that princess thing, I, we're going to get to that show eventually, but uh, <laughs> I thought that uh, you could see how much Blanche Dubois had influenced this woman who arrives, you know, like to this place that she obviously doesn't like at all. And she's trying to rescue people. And even the people who don't want to be with her, because I, I don't think her sister really was like all over her. She was more worried about her wedding. Uh, but she's so convinced that she needs rescuing that she's so blind to everyone's needs rather than helping them uh, fulfill them, I guess. And it's a minor point, still really enjoyable. I hope it transfers goes to another theater. I don't know what, maybe MCC or something that would do a large cast play. It's already been announced uh, for the West Coast that the East-West Players is going to do it as part of their season next year. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And Leah has a play in a reading series at Primary Stages coming up in the next couple of weeks that is open to the public. It's part of an annual series. They do the Dorothy Strelsen Fresh Ink Reading Series. Um, so you I can really find like that. that series. Yeah, it's I free. actually went to the first one earlier this week, and I'm planning to attend all of them if schedule my schedule permits. But all you have to do is RSVP by emailing them. We'll post a link to that on the show page, but you can also just find that information, I'm sure, at Primary Stages page. Okay, next up, Dear Evan Hansen, David. Oh, that's me. Dear Evan Hansen <laughs> is a new musical by uh, the songwriting team of Pasek and Paul with a book by Stephen Levinson that is wrapping up its run at second stage but has been announced for Broadway next season um, after an out-of-town run at Arena Stage in D.C. It is, honestly, it's the kind of story that I think the less you know about the plot, the better. Um, Suffice to say, it's about a teenager played by Ben Platt, who you might remember from the Pitch Perfect films or uh, from Book of Mormon. Um who has some social anxiety issues and has his arm in a cast and is about to start a new school year. Um, And the title, Dear Evan Hansen, refers to uh, an activity that his therapist has asked him to do where he's supposed to start each morning by writing himself a letter of affirmation. Um, Dear Evan Hansen, today's going to be a great day. Here's why. Um, And then what happens when he attempts to enter the new school year with this as a framework um, goes and I think all sorts of really interesting and surprising directions. Um, And I I don't want to say more about it because I think part of what made me really fall in love with this show and I did 
was sort of the delightful surprises of it. Um, I will say this is directed by Michael Mayer, who, sorry, just kidding, Michael Greif. <laughs> so many Michael directors. That's true. It's directed by Michael Greif, who I am not generally a fan of um, because I find that he tends to rely on his old bag of tricks. Uh, in general, I thought he did a really good job with this. There were a few moments that felt very much lifted from next to normal directorially. Um, but like... There was no scaffolding. This is the first Michael Greif show I've ever seen without scaffolding on the set. Um, and and it, 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 he really, uh, I think, is very good at capturing family dynamics and interpersonal dynamics. Uh, Rachel Bay Jones plays Evan's mother. And um, Jennifer Laura Thompson plays uh, mother of one of his classmates. And the two of them, I thought, really anchor the show in a way that elevates it from just being sort of like a, a teen drama kind of musical. Um, I think it, it when I saw the show, at the end of Act One, I turned to my friend and I said, you know, if I want to be cynical about this, it feels a little bit like a group of producers sat around and read Tumblr for a day and said, if we want to create the musical that will speak to Tumblr culture, that will speak to teenagers today, that'll get done in every high school in a couple of years, how do we do it? And this is the show they come up with. The second act made me lose my cynicism. Like I don't, I don't really think that that those were the um, sort of commercial ideas behind it. Although I do think that this is a show that very much will speak to teenagers and will get done in high schools. Um, there's a little bit of work still to be done for Broadway, and I hope they do it. Um, it is, from what I've heard, the work that they've done from DC to Second Stage was all seemed to be very positive. Um, there's a number that is new for this run that closes act one that that inspired my cynicism that really plays it's one of those tough theatrical things where it's a moment where they need to do something that um it they, they end up creating a, a club slash nonprofit organization and there's like sort of a like a psa slash commercial for it that becomes a song that to me felt a little bit too too much like the actual thing and not like the theatrical version of the thing. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it it left me feeling a little bit like, oh, my emotions are being manipulated in a way that like nonprofits do so that you'll give money to their cause and not in the way that like theater does so that you feel more for the characters. That again may just be me being cynical and being someone who works in marketing communications for nonprofits. Uh, <laughs> but um, like I said, uh, it's hard to fault a moment for ringing too true. Um, so I, I, I don't know. What do you guys think about it? What uh, changed your mind in the second act? Was it just deeper emotionally or did it? Yeah, I think it, I think it, it focused a little more on the characters and their relationships and a little bit less on like plot points. Um, I mean, and not that the first act was too plot heavy. It's just like, you need to get the story to a certain place so that then the relationships can kind of do their thing. I'll make sure to post time codes for each show that we discuss so that if anybody wants to skip this discussion, they can. Because I do think it is hard to talk about this show without getting into a little bit of the machinations. But I agree with you, David, that knowing as little as possible is the best way to see this show. I really enjoyed it. As a whole, I thought it was great. And I thought Ben Platt's performance was tremendous. Yes. There was not a false note in it, which I think is the second time I've used that phrase in this conversation. But um oh, somebody I can't I don't know who it was, but I think they tweeted at you, 
um, David, that afterwards they wanted to give him a hug. Yeah. And I've had that response to performances. And I think it's a very specific response where it is, it is a combination of feeling for the character itself. And this character goes through a lot, but also tremendous respect for the human behind the performance, the actor, and how much he or she, but in this case, he is giving to the performance. Mm. Like you feel like they come off. I feel like Ben Platt ends each night like five pounds lighter because he has given a literal part of himself to the performance. It's so excellent that you just want to give him a hug. That's how I ended the performance feeling as well. So I was really taken in by, by him and what he was able to do on stage. There are a few things in this show that I found a little bit, I don't know, disconcerting might not be too strong a word, but I thought the show's treatment of taking medication for mental illness was a little bit suspect. The character just goes off his meds one day when he's feeling better and like apparently suffers very little repercussions for that activity, which I thought was a very dangerous message to be sending, especially for a show targeted to the particular audience you're mm, talking yeah. about, David. And his mom was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, and so that leads precisely to my second point, which I found his mother to be totally confounding. Nothing she did made any sense to me. I did not understand that character and the way she interacted with her son at all. And I found her to just be totally confusing. And at every turn, I did not understand her decision. Like, I understood the setup for the character. But then as she proceeds through the show, she makes decisions that to me seemed contrary to the my original understanding of the character. And she, to me, stuck out like a sore thumb as not really fitting in with the rest of the narrative. I didn't understand where she was coming from at all. Interesting for me. So the, his mother is a single mother who has a working class job um, and uh, works lots of hours and is um, often prioritizing trying to keep a roof over their head to sort of the emotional relationship with her son. Yeah, she's really struggling. Yeah, and I don't know. It To me, it, it felt... It reminded me of people I know, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I do understand what you're saying. Like, it, there are times when it, it felt like she had just kind of, like, like her actions seemed to say that she had given up on on trying to keep Evan afloat, and yet everything she said was like, "No, I really want to prioritize you. I want to." You know, and just to be clear, I'm not saying that the fact that she was like a struggling working mom didn't make sense to me. That all made sense. It was the decisions that she made on top of that that I found very confusing. At a, there's a moment where someone reaches out to them to offer assistance. And I can see a certain person making one decision and another person making a different decision. It was confusing to me that that character made the decision she made in that moment. And and the subsequent decisions she made following that moment. So uh, see, anyway, I just found that very, that I, I think her that, character to me made it difficult for me to feel like this piece was fully baked. See, I think that that moment, and I think you're right that it's like a little underwritten and they need to work it. But to me, what I saw there was she was so blindsided by learning all these things about her son that she didn't know, including the fact that he had these friends, he had this girlfriend, he yeah. had this other family he had been spending time with instead of her um, that she started to feel replaced. Yes. And that's why like the offer of financial assistance was just like a bridge too far. Um, but yeah, I mean that definitely the writing up to that point could have 
uh, yeah, but for a character who cares so much about her son, for someone to be offer financial support for her son, like it made no sense to me that that character would make that decision in that moment. It's not that I can't see a character declining that assistance. It's just that in that moment, in that place, it didn't make sense for that character for me. Mm-hmm. In development, um, it seems like you're talking about or advocating for the old school system of trying a show out of town and it going from Boston to Philadelphia to D.C. And along each point, you get a chance to rewrite it. Well, that Rather is essentially what they've done here. They started in D.C., now they're here off Broadway, now they're going to Broadway. I mean, it's not quite the, like, multi-city tour, but in many ways that is what has happened with the show. But if you look at the old musicals that Moss Hart and those worked on, they would change dramatically from, like, four or five cities. Yeah. And then it would arrive in New York City, get the New York Times review. But if you saw on a funny thing happen on the way to the forum in Boston, or it was a disaster, it made no sense, and they did dramatic rewriting, and I sort of missed that or wish we still had that, where you could see it sort of ramp up to the New York premiere and the review. Not, not to be that guy, but like the rewriting in Forum was not so dramatic. They replaced the opening number um, and that made all the difference. And the rewriting from from DC to here for Dear Evan Hansen is actually probably a little more dramatic in that mm-hmm. they replaced the closing number of Act One. They, I think there's another new number in the first act. And there's here's where we're going to get into real spoiler stuff. Um, the whole subplot of Evan having attempted suicide himself is new for this version of the show. Oh, really? That was not oh, in the original. Okay. That's so interesting because okay. I assumed that from almost the first beat of the show. That was my conclusion. Oh, interesting. Um, and I, uh, hmm, and that's interesting. What do you think that this show, how do you think this show will fare on Broadway, David? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's so hard to say because on the one hand, like I cried and cried and cried through this show. And I feel like how can this show not touch people? But the show's small for Broadway. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be curious to see if and how they open it up. Um, it's exceedingly white. Um, they, there's one African-American actress in the show now. There was there were none in D.C. It's That's something that could be improved further going forward. Um, it's... I mean, the you know, it, it, the audience that I think it speaks most to is not the audience that has tremendous ticking, ticket buying power. Um, you know, Tumblr audience. Teen, teenagers and their families. Um, you know, it, a lot of this has to do with, or not, not so much the plot, but the setting of the show involves a lot of online stuff. Like there's, if you don't understand Twitter and YouTube and things like that, you could be very confused by a lot of what happens in the first act, which makes me worry about how it'll fare with like wealthy old people who go to the theater. Um, but uh, I would like to believe that a show like this that has so much heart and, and a, a genuinely fantastic score, like some some of these songs I think we'll be hearing for years to come. Um, I, 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 hope, I hope they figure out how to introduce it to a broader audience in a way that makes it successful. I have a question because I haven't seen the show, but one of the things that's actually keeping me from the show is that everyone endorses it with saying, I cried and cried and cried and cried. And I, you know, like it's a red flag for me because confession, I have never cried in the theater, like ever. Uh, I have a really hard time crying. So I feel that if I looked around and I saw everyone crying and I was like dry eyed, it would, mean that I didn't like get the show and people would be like burn him you know (laughs) I I didn't cry at it but I was touched by it so I think you'd be okay Okay. I mean but it is an odd thing to endorse a show by saying I sobbed a ton you should totally go see it it'll wrench your heart out like it's a little bit of a you know like 
But not everybody is looking for that in a theater. Right. Well, before we started recording, I was talking about how I haven't seen Blackbird yet because it's such a um, like a serious downer kind of a play. And like when I have my like entertainment time, that's not always the kind of emotion I want to evoke. This is not a downer play. This is, I think, is very like uplifting and life affirming. But it's it 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 does sort of like tug at the heartstrings in certain ways. I just want to say one more thing and then we can move on, which is that in many ways, this show has a shocking ending by being anticlimactic. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I find I didn't, it didn't even strike me as particularly anticlimactic, but you're right. It, I, midway through the second act, I was like, this is like watching a car wreck in slow motion. This is like watching a car barrel towards a brick wall. You know exactly what's going to happen. And you're just waiting for this like big explosion. And then that never happened. And I was so surprised. Well, I mean, there's a big confrontation scene. But not the one, not as big or the one that you're actually expecting. You're expecting him to get exposed publicly. And oh, that never happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Because these are human beings. <laughs> <laughs> but in in no, I, I know, as I a, know. A, as a as a person writing this play it would be very hard to resist including that confrontation in the show yes yeah no i was i was glad that it didn't go there i thought that was actually really smart okay next up this time jose okay this time is uh, a play by seven k green um it's based on the memoirs of uh, a woman called Susie Coates, uh, the memoirs called Not So Long Ago. And basically, here we have yet another uh, show about a woman who arrives thinking she has to rescue someone else. And in this case, it's her uh, daughter, Janine. Uh, so basi basically, uh, Amal breaks her uh, arm, I think, and her daughter takes her in. But in her mind, She's arriving to save her daughter from, uh, you know, from a, a, a midlife crisis, sort of, that she thinks she has. So while she's staying at her daughter's house, she starts having all this uh, flashbacks slash visions of when she was younger and living in Egypt and how she fell in love with a professor, a Canadian professor, and eventually decided to leave her children and husband behind and married the professor and moved to America. I mean, Canada, America. Both. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, the, the, the play is directed by uh, Kareem Fani. And the thing, I thought the play was really well written. I thought the characters were really interesting and, and very complex. But my biggest issue, I think, was with the uh, directing. And it's it made the play very confusing. I mean, I, sometimes I didn't know if Amal was having flashbacks if she was remembering stuff if she was seeing ghosts so to speak if we were seeing a show about dementia or if we were seeing just a, a show about parallel stories happening at the same time the blocking i found very confusing you know like characters would like conveniently and i mean i understand that you have to work with the set and what you have i thought the set was actually pretty great but um it felt like everything was like uh thrown into place to serve the, um, I don't know, like it, they uh, limited themselves, the director limited himself by the choices that the actual space gave him. And he made uh, some very confusing things happen. Like people would go out through doors and then other characters would come from like uh, the second story and 
you were like, wait, are we still like in the present? Are we still like, are we going back to the past? And also there were very confusing elements all over the set, like a wireless. I, I'm sorry, this is very petty, but I couldn't stop looking at the at the wireless phone. And there were scenes set in the 1960s and then in the 1970s, and this phone would always be there. And then I kept asking myself, why is older Amal having visions of younger Amal in her daughter's house? Uh, I don't know. Uh, they sound like very petty things to complain about, but they took me out of the story at many, many times. With that said, I thought the two uh, actresses who played Amal were fantastic. Um, older uh, Amal was played by Delphi Harrington, and she was so great. She puts on this like huge like diva, like Auntie Mame performance, and she's very vicious, but she doesn't know she's being vicious, and that's what I thought was so lovely. And then uh, younger Amal was played by Renda Haywood, who made me, uh, she looks like she just like came to life out of like a Mad Men episode. She's so glamorous and uh, she was also very moving. And I thought that even though both actresses don't really look the same, they their performances were so in sync and so tuned in that not for a second you doubted that they were the same uh, character. I really love Rising Circle and the people involved in this production. I didn't enjoy this play. Uh, I thought the directing might have been confusing because it lacked basic structure in scene-to-scene -scene work, and a scene for me involves an event that's happening. And by the second act, when you have a repeat of the same information, that's no longer an event. So for instance, there's a scene where it's like, what do you want me to do? She goes, stop drinking. All right, let me write a list. Stop drinking. Let's go have a drink. End of scene, she storms out. That's not an event because we've already been through that information before. Nothing new happens, and then it transitions into the present. And so when there's no event, then the actors and directors can start messing around with stuff, and it all sort of falls apart because we're just doing things that look pretty and look nice based around writing that's very poetic and beautiful. So I found a lot of the writing to be poetic without propulsion or purpose and without events in the scene. So the scenes sort of slide around in the past and present. I don't really know why we're having this particular flashback at this particular time. And it's just very gooey. And there was no there was no markation point where I could be like, oh, this scene serves this purpose and that drives this in the future. It was very gooey, but the writing was good. Um, it was beautiful poetry in sections. And it kind of frustrated me because then I go, okay, well, these people can write, they can direct, there is talent involved, but it's not being applied on a basic foundation of scene to scene events, emotional arcs and purpose. And that was me, very subjective, but I was sort of sitting there by the second act and feeling a bit uh, tired of watching the same argument again and again about the same two or three things. Lindsay? Go ahead. Um, yeah, I guess I, I shared, Jose, your confusion, and I think part of it was that the set, the way it was designed, they had these big panels that had projections on them that were very hard to see. Um, just the, the lighting worked against the projection so that um, those panels changed to tell, give us hints about, are we in their house in Rhode Island? Are we at the contemporary house? Are we in Egypt? But but it was so washed out because of the lighting that it was really hard to, to get a sense of place. Um, I felt like I was interested in these characters and I wanted to know more about them and the play like sort of stubbornly didn't tell us like it's sort of what you were saying or like 
it felt like it didn't show me the scenes that I wanted to see from their lives. Like, exactly. Like it took, I wanted to know why did she break up with Nick? What happened to Nick? Where's Nick today? And we got little tiny hints of that, but that would, uh, we never really got, uh, like, I don't think we got their final breakup scene or if we did, it came so late in the play that I just like had sort of given up. Um, you know, even like the relationship between, um, the mother and her three children. It took very late into the play until we even learned that she left them behind in Egypt when she left. Um, we hear very little about uh, about one of the sons and only slightly more about the other one. And I found that relationship, again, it came so late in the play to be sort of like an afterthought and confusing. And and there's such ripe um, possibilities from, from these people and their stories. And I feel like we didn't get the most interesting story that you could get from these raw materials. After we saw this play, I did a little bit of reading about it. And I thought it was interesting that the main character, as Jose mentioned, is based on a real person who is the grandmother of the director Mm -hmm. and the playwright and the director set out to make a play about women, uh, from a woman from Egypt, but not to have all of the trappings that we think of as stereotypical about women from the Middle East. And so in that context, I found this play to be really interesting. And uh, I really appreciated the way in which like we're having a conversation about it that has like none of the like stereotypes about women from the Middle East. I think I shared all of your perspectives that is a little slow um, and it was performed with an intermission, which I thought seemed unnecessary. Like if they could have just trimmed some, made it a, a tighter, uh, a little bit sparkier 90 minute play, I thought it would have been served well by that. Anything else to add? I also saw the show after Mother's Day, and I think it's a perfect—it's <laughs> a perfect show for Mother's Day because when I was watching it, it, it reminded me of a uh, something Kate Blanchett said in an interview when she was doing the rounds for Carol, and she said that people judge you on whether you are a good mother or not, and there's not a single way of being a mother. And I found it really—I don't want to use this word—but uh, I, I thought it was courageous to show a mother who was not warm and not like you know like all over her children but who wasn't a bad mother. They don't really turn her into a villain. And that is so interesting you should say that. Why don't you think she's a villain? Why don't you think she's a bad mother? <laughs> <laughs> because she, she uh, I, I, something else that it reminded me of was that character Laura Brown in The Hours, who she makes a choice. Like she could either stay in Egypt and suffer under not only the, uh, the regime, but also like the treatment of women. So I think actually... It was a, uh, uh, she showed she was a good mother by taking, by making the choice of staying alive. Even and leaving if her it, children there. Even if it, if it was far away from, from her children. Who she left under the regime and the mean husband. But I mean, the husband was mostly mean to her. I mean, probably, yeah, to her. And, and she knew, I mean, she obviously wasn't thinking that well, I want to say, because yeah, her daughter was there. She had two sons and a daughter. Maybe she should have tried taking her daughter. But I think in the back of her head, in the back of her mind, she always had the intention of, you know, having her children come live with her. But she first had to make the choice of being alive and and, and going somewhere where she could, you know, like grow some roots. And this is also something 
what I thought was the most heartbreaking thing about the show was that she left a prison to go to another prison with this crazy Canadian dude. Um, That's so interesting. What were your, what were your opinions of the mom? I thought she wasn't a villain, but I definitely thought she was a bad mother and that she didn't know what she was doing. And the geopolitical aspect that she brought in the first scene, the meet cute Nora Ephron scene (laughs) completely disappears and it just becomes about their love. I love you now, I don't love you. And the actual interesting aspect of how this fits an interracial marriage or relationship that stretches across different borders just completely evaporates and it becomes sort of a, a, a soap opera of like, I love you, these people have no lives outside of their direct relationships to the person they're in love with, Nick, and then the kids are sort of ancillary off there to the side which speaks of the mother's, I guess, priorities a little bit. And I'm not judging, you're allowed, I mean, I don't think a mother has to have this a primal instinctive motivation to always think of the kids first, but it was a little bit like, well, what do you want the kids to do? You sort of left them behind. You what want did them you to think, David? Yeah, pretty much the same. I don't see her as a villain. I see her as someone who prioritized her own well-being over her kids' well-being, and like that's a choice. And like, you know, it's not like her kids were not okay Okay, I mean, at least weren't physically okay. Like they were certainly hurt by that abandonment. Um, but I, I, I don't think I don't think she's a villain. I also don't think she's a good mom. Well, I thought the play actually did a pretty good job, eventually, of demonstrating the elements of conflict internal to the mother. So she does lay out the case for why she was so oppressed in Egypt. But prior to that moment, I was extremely angry with that mother. (laughs) I thought she was the villain. I could not understand how a woman could just pick up and ditch her kids in Egypt under, uh, you know, an oppressive regime that she wanted to flee herself. But like, it made no sense to me that she would then leave her kids there. Um, A husband who she found like, unloving and possibly abusive and yet she left her kids with that person like and it's interesting because she has three children and you don't get to see the middle child's reaction to the mom but you get to see the daughter who's present on stage and living with that they're living together at the time temporarily um, and you get to see her struggle with her mom and, and dealing with how her mother treated her as a child um, and what that abandonment meant to her but then in a very brief scene you get to see the youngest child's reaction to that and I very much shared his perspective on his mother like I thought he was extremely hostile to her and very upset that she had abandoned them and I was very much aligned with his perspective on that and there was a really interesting moment in that scene where she could she remembered it as him being older when she had left yes and I thought that was very telling that like in order for her to feel okay with her choices she's basically had to rewrite history of course she did. Yeah. She couldn't possibly possibly live with herself if she understood the true ramifications of the decisions she made on her children. Anyway, I think it's fascinating that we all had different perspectives on that and demonstrates the quality of the play, in my opinion. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's go on to the next show, Daphne's Dive. Aaron. Oh, boy. Uh, Daphne's Dive by Chiara Alegria Hudes and directed by Thomas Kale, their first collaboration since In the Heights is at Signature Theater, and it's in previews, I believe. It hasn't opened yet officially. And I think it, it will have by the time this comes out. Okay. And it's about a barkeep and manager, Daphne, who runs this divey bar in North Philadelphia, 
and this ragtag group of artists and people who stop by over the course of 20 years, a baby falls from a roof at the beginning and sort of grows up with this bar and she serves as a narrator and Daphne Rubin Vega, who everyone is eyes, eyes are on her pretty much the whole show is the sister of Daphne who comes in occasionally. Um, Speaking of gooey poetic writing with no propulsion or purpose, I really admire In the Heights. Uh, I saw Elliot Fugue when it first opened up at the Culture Project like over 10 years ago, and I saw the third play in that trilogy. Oddly enough, I didn't see the play that won the Pulitzer, What About a Spoonful, but I saw the third play that she wrote in the Elliot uh, trilogy. So this is her first play post-Elliot. I've always wondered what the deal is with writing where everyone sounds like they're a poet and no one mentions that. Like everyone's from the streets and they sound like they got an MFA from Brown (laughs) and poetry. And they talk in this sing-singy, sing-songy, slingy, like rap slam poet way. I'm not saying you can't do that, but when you have a setting like Daphne's Dive that is a normal bar in North Philadelphia, and you're trying to give them realistic stakes and realistic uh, motivations, It the style jars with me, that re- realism with the aesthetic choice of people you know, doing a slam poetry about their life or speaking in these overly ornate terms. I'm going to give you one example because it happens in the first scene, so I'm not going to spoil the rest of it. But they find the girl who falls from the seventh floor, whatever, third floor of the apartment, in the dumpster behind the bar. And they bring her in, and she has glass all over her, and she's just fallen out of the third floor window. Her parents have been lost. They've been arrested by the DEA for selling drugs. She's all alone. And Daphne or someone says, she looks like a mosaic. Like, I was so furious. Like, someone falls from the third floor as a child and has glass all over them, and no one says, Gee, should we take her to a hospital? Should we (laughs) go see about? It turns something that immediately is pressing and intense and life or death into a poetry moment. And it kind of makes me think these characters aren't real and they're not operating on any sort of real terms. So that when they get to the more serious issues of politics and sexual abuse, I'm like, you just let someone fall from a roof. You took them inside and then you compared them to a painting. And that was the end of the scene. You didn't think like it maybe not trust the characters. And then you watch them over the course of 20 years. And I didn't understand why I was there. And I was with the director, I'm not going to name. And we kept turning to each other. Each scene, there was a blackout. And I said, is the plot going to begin now? It's just people coming in, talking over 20 years. And it's narrated by the little girl who grows up. And I didn't understand. So what is a common thread? Iceman cometh. They all have an ambition of getting out of the bar. There's like something that unites them, even if it's just a theme of why they're there. I didn't understand why these people were here. I didn't understand what they were trying to do. I didn't understand why I was watching this particular section of time with this girl. It could have gone on for 30 years with this girl or 40 years or 50 years. There was no end point. It just stopped. And then the lights went down and then someone in the back applauded and we knew like, oh, it's over now. The saving grace was there was no intermission because if there was, it would cause even more structural problems 
because you would wonder because you wouldn't have an audience for the second half (laughs) probably and also you'd be like why is the intermission here it could be any place it could be after she falls out of the roof it could be when she starts doing pills it could be at any point in time and I didn't understand why Signature Theater was doing this play that is not even at the level of like a workshop production it is at the level of maybe a first reading of something that could be very good based upon the characters now I will say the characters are interesting and the characters are beautifully written and scored and they are watchable to some extent and they tell some pretty amazing stories but it doesn't fit within any container it's just jello that's melted and is just flowing across the stage uh, for two hours so that is my interpretation I think that um, many of those points are fair, but I will also say to this play's credit, there were moments when I was really sucked in and really drawn in by the characters and by the moments. And those kind of snuck up on me because as a whole, I was having, I was struggling to really, the play was struggling to hold my attention. Um, You know, about 20 minutes in, all of a sudden there was a scene and I was like, oh, that snuck up on me. Well, now I'm really sucked in and engaged. But then the problem was you would jump time and all the momentum that you had gained in that scene would dissipate so for example yes. there's a scene between Daphne who's the proprietor of the bar and a character named Jen and they just they have this intimate moment and I was just really raptured in the moment and uh, then blackout move forward five years and I was like wait what happened exactly and then uh, much later, you know, maybe maybe 45 minutes later, there's a reference back to not necessarily the scene, but the um, the outcome of the uh, of the of the thing that got started in that scene. And I was like, oh, wait, that wasn't just a moment. That was a, a relationship that started and lasted over time. And then I was like, I want to see that, you know, tell me more about those characters in that relationship and what happened and the 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 growth and then the decline of that relationship that those two women have. Like, I want to know all about that. And it, and, and I was, I felt like all the things I wanted to see, like the play would capture me and then it would, it would toss me back out into a, starting from scratch essentially, because, because of these time jumps, you would have to establish this is this person there, this age, we're in this location, we're doing this thing. And you, you, most of the scenes take place in the bar, but um, at one moment you jump to a different location and there's all this, you know, not world building, that's probably too strong a phrase, but essentially what has to happen, like oh, this, we're now in this college, we're having this art scene, here's all the history that lead, leads up to the, the five-year jump, um, and, then, and then we'll have the scene, and then we'll close it down and move on. And it was really fractured and hard to, to maintain my attention for the, I think, 95 minutes or so that the play went on. We saw it, it was first very, night, it was almost two hours. It was very unfortunate because there are some, really lovely characters and some really yes. fantastic moments and it was like David I think you said this about the earlier play which is like all the scenes I wanted to see they weren't showing me <laughs> and that was very very frustrating there were so many things left unexplored that I was I was I was really disappointed in that and you speak of design pet peeves let's talk about hearing the piano player upstairs but not hearing any noise every time someone enters a bar in North Philadelphia <laughs> so I know it's so minor to most Uh, audience members but to people in theater it's like okay you have a sound design for the piano player who apparently lives and continues to play piano for 20 years occasionally intermittently whenever it's convenient for a moment (laughs) in the play Uh, but someone entering a bar it's just like no noise 
we don't have any bar noise. We don't have any sense of the world sound design wise, the use of the stage and why is the audience raked on both sides? I don't know what that gives us. Oh, really? Oh, I totally disagree with that. I very much loved that design in the sense that I felt like we were all sitting around a table at a bar. And it just made me feel like we were all part of, of the action in this bar because there was an audience on one side and us on the other and we could see each other because often the lighting allowed for that. Um, and I just thought it created a very, like, we're all part of this community feel. But what I started doing because the play wasn't holding my attention well, is I started is, looking at other people who also were sleeping. <laughs> Anna Winator was in a row above uh, ahead of me and I was looking at what she was wearing and I was like, oh, that's a cute dress. <laughs> and she had like a nice leather jacket on and I was looking at all my colleagues in theater who were both looking at each other, we were all looking at each other like, is this really happening? Are we watching a play by a Pulitzer Prize winning author directed by a Broadway director at Signature Theater that has no propulsion, that has no engine, and just sort of ambles on and on and on? Anyway. Okay. But there were beautiful moments. The story at the end with the shoe, I kind of liked, even though my, my director friend hated it. Oh my God, and I love that. <laughs> I love like, this. Yes. This, why can't this play be all this? This is such a beautful moment. I'm like not... I'm not tearing up, but I'm like very emotionally touched by this. Okay, let's move agree. on. Let's move on. Okay, Streetcar Named Desire, David. Streetcar Named Desire, Tennessee Williams, big play about uh, the end of the Old South and the rise of the New South <laughs> uh, in a production at St. Anne's Warehouse brought over from The Young Vic, starring Gillian Anderson and uh, Ben Foster as Blanche and Stanley. Um, directed by Benedict Andrews, I think the most notable thing about this production, other than the cast, is that it's done in modern dress on a rotating stage with the audience on all sides. Uh, this was my first streetcar. I'd never read it, never seen it. I only know about it from pop culture references. Um, and it did not make a great case to me for the strength <laughs> of Streetcar Named Desire. Um, I came out of this play saying, like, boy... I'm not sure who Tennessee Williams hated more, women or himself. Uh, and I think the problem is that, well, let me just say, I'm going to take it on faith that the problem is not in the script because it is a classic that has withstood uh, many years and many productions. So I, I'm, I'm giving the script sort of the benefit of the doubt. Um, so part of it is at the very beginning of the play, Blanche is visiting, um, we think, from uh her her plantation home uh to her sister and her new husband who live in a new orleans flop house and when she gets there she starts making comments about the state that they're living in and it's clear that blanche is looking down on it but it's not really clear in this production what exactly she has wrong with it because they have all this gorgeous like mid-century modern furniture that looks like um it's somewhere between Ikea and, like, high-end design. I mean, it's sparse and, like, their couch is a, is a yucky cot. But, like, she has this gorgeous vanity. And she, I mean, like, they only have a half-size fridge. How terrible. I don't know. Let's just say it's larger and nicer than the studio we're recording in. Exactly. Exactly. So that so already there's, like, a little bit of a mismatch between, like, like I don't think this play can't be done in modern dress. But I think that if you're going to do it that way, it needs to be crystal clear what the situation is. And so already I was a little bit lost in the first scene. Hmm. Um, also, I, I think a common complaint about Tennessee Williams writing of women is that they are often pitched at a very um, high register to the point of seeming almost like drag queens. 
Um, and I think in the hands of a sensitive director and sensitive performer, uh, you can absolutely work against that and humanize these people. That was not what I was getting from Gillian Anderson, who seemed to come on um, in the first scene at 11 and stay there. And it was just a lot of like, I don't know, like screaming her lines and big motions. And it, it, it didn't it didn't feel like a real human woman person to me. It felt like a repressed gay man's idea of what a fabulous diva might be like. And um, and so that was hard because it, it's a long play to sustain at that level. Um, interestingly enough for me, I felt that Ben Foster as Stanley seemed really understated to the point where I thought, I don't want to say he got lost in the play because I think he gave a really strong and solid performance, but it seemed to place this character much more in a supporting role, whereas one imagines that when Brando played the role, it was the star or, or an equal star part on equal footing. Um, so, yeah, you know, it just... It, uh, you guys liked it better than I did, so why don't you talk about it? Go ahead. Okay, I, I'm obviously very biased because Streetcar Named Desire is by far my favorite play of all time. The movie is my favorite movie of all time. And at the performance I attended, Judith Light arrived wearing a cape. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. I was like, "Thank you, you know, theater gods. This is amazing." So uh, I, I actually, I, I see where you're coming from. Saying, I, and I even said, you know, like her apartment's like bigger than most apartments in New York, and it's fabulous. But th- I, I think that Jillian really captured this fact that Blanche is a god in a way. She thinks she's a god. And she arrives and she looks out on everything because uh, she's well, she's she's insane. But also, uh, this I I appreciated how much this production. And I know, like, I can recite like passages from this play like all the time. And I'm always like pretending I'm Blanche, which sounds awful. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I appreciated that this uh, production made me see richness in the language that I had never uh, seen before. Like, for example, when. Uh, Stanley tells uh, Blanche that she arrives and she thinks she's the queen of denial. I was like, oh, the queen of denial. And I, I had never seen that and I've read it. And I anyway, I, I appreciate that. appreciated that a lot. And also, at first I have to confess that I felt like I needed some Dramamine for the, uh, the rotating. rotating set. Yeah, it made me really dizzy. Mm-hmm. But then after a while, did you guys, do you guys know what they were rotating it? Um, what do you mean? Do you like? Do you have any theory? Oh yeah, why? it seemed to me that it, like the more that their lives spun out of control, the more that that the stage spun. Like it, oh, I actually thought that, <laughs> that sounds cheesy. I thought it worked really well. Oh, okay. Like, wait, I, do you think it spun faster? I thought it spun more. Yes, sometimes faster, but also more. Oh really? I did not catch that. What, I, it also reversed directions at times. Yeah, yeah. but there were times when it, it, it was like a very very slow spin. I don't think it ever spun fast, but there was right. a difference between sort of the like very almost subtle slow revolve and times when it spun well it was too subtle for me i didn't catch that i came up with like this really weird theory and i might be completely wrong but i was like taking notes and i noticed that the first that when the show starts the the set was uh rotating clockwise Mm -hmm. and then the very first time that it starts rotating counterclockwise is when blanche has the first chance at falling in love with mitch and it's as she's going to be able to find redemption and going back in time, literally. Uh, and then Mitch dumps her and the thing goes back to clockwise. And then it kept, and as she kept going insane, it kept 
it kept rotating, not faster, but the directions changed more often. So I thought that was really interesting, but I still would suggest like a drama mean before the show starts. <laughs> oh, I didn't have that of impact. But David, I'm I'm curious. Did you not enjoy Jillian Anderson's performance? Oh gosh, that's a really hard thing to say because on the like individual scene, individual monologue level, I did. But as a performance of a character with an arc throughout a very long play, I did not. Oh, interesting. I was just so mesmerized by her. And this is a this particular production of this play is quite slow. It stretches over three hours, which a lot of people who are uh, students of the play have complained about. Um, there are some really nice uh, reviews of this play, I thought, actually, that were intelligent. Um, uh, but I was just mesmerized by her the whole time and completely confounded by how strong I thought her performance was. So I, I can't say I, like you, David, had never um, read or seen a production of this play. Um, but I was quite enthralled by her, by Jillian Anderson. I thought she was quite amazing. It definitely made me want to. Well, it made me want to watch the movie of. Um, you know, the classic movie. It also made me run to my bookshelf and pull out the collection I have of Split Bridges scripts because they're a, a lesbian performance art uh, group that many years ago did a very famous take on Streetcar called Belle Reprieve uh, that gender swapped some of the roles. And so I have that sitting out on my table now so that I can revisit that through the lens of having recently seen the play. I would love to see a lesbian version of this. <laughs> With all women, I think that would be great. Like terrifying, <laughs> or terrifying. All yeah. right, Port Cities, Jose. Okay, Port Cities is part of a bigger uh, global initiative. I guess that at some point we'll take the show, uh, some uh, uh, branch of the show, to places like Perth and uh, Jakarta and Cape Town, and basically they're f- supposed to be following the uh, paths of uh, Dutch traders, uh, right? Yeah. So anyway, the the first. Uh, part of the of the series, I guess, is uh, happening in New York City, and the show starts by having you take uh, well the subway or however you get down <laughs> to Pier Eleven, uh, and then you get on a ferry, and then on the ferry you are instructed to either download or go on your phone. You need headphones, by the way, or go on your phone and uh, go to a SoundCloud link. Uh, and as the ferry goes from Manhattan all the way to Red Hook, you are listening to this uh, soundscape, this narration uh, and music. And on the way, you're learning about this character that you are going to meet when you arrive in in Red Hook called Katie. And she's um, an archaeologist, and she's talking about how she's always been haunted by several images that she's not really sure what they mean from her past. And on the ferry, she talks about... uh, a photograph in particular and then it's kind of cool because when you're on the boat you are seeing you see the statue of liberty and you see uh you know the city and the the, the skyscrapers and everything and it's like kind of like sending you back on a like a time travel i want to say like in a time machine but then you arrive in red hook and everything goes to hell <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you go to uh, a barge uh, at the uh, Waterfront Museum and show both barge where the actual performance takes place. And allegedly what we are seeing is Katie coming to terms with her past. She discovers that 
there were uh, slave traders in her family. Uh, but the execution is, uh, to say it's confusing would be like a total understatement. It's very loud and uh, messy and uh, just not very good, to be honest. Like, I, and, it, and it made me, it makes me really sad to say this because when I first heard, you know, like, oh my God, I'm taking a ferry and there's like a, a thing that you have to download and then you're going to like a, an old like rustic barge. Everything sounded like a recipe for like, you know, like amazing like pie from like that waitress musical. But in the end, it was none of that. And it made me very, very, very sad. Disagree. Strong disagree. Oh, oh great. wow. I really, it? really like this piece. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I'm usually the first person to call bullshit on experimental theater that feels like more experimental than theater. Um, but I... And I was definitely in an audience with people who did not understand what was going on because there was a talk back afterwards and people started like demanding that the artist explain the play to her. But to me, I I thought it was like a beautiful collage of the different economic forces that created Manhattan as we know it. So once you get on the barge, um, first of all, the the musician who created the soundscape that we heard on our on our headphones is now there playing live. And there's this like really kind of cool moment when you're still listening on your headphones and you can hear the live music and it kind of blends into each other. Um, that for me was just like a really like magical way to sort of enter this space. Um, there were, so that there were four actors, right? Um, and three of whom were playing characters from the past and one of whom was playing this um, archeologist in the present. Um, and I think, first of all, the, the barge, although it is a place that does theater um, with some regularity, it's not great in terms of sight lines. And I think where you sit may have a big influence on whether or not you understand what's going on or how you understand it. Interesting. I was sitting all the way house left, so I was near the desk where Katie spends much of the show, um, on which she had a bunch of books and a copy of the board game Settlers of Catan, which provides sort of the... Um, structure for the performance that's about to happen and i think if you did not see that game sitting there or were not familiar with that game um that would very much hurt your ability to understand the rest of what's happening because they uh they portray these four different settlers of early manhattan um each of whom was involved in a different kind of um economical scheme to to sort of make their way in the new world um, and it looked at the ways that each of these things uh, was successful or not, was moral or not. Uh, so we had um, someone who uh, was a Dutch trader involved in the tulip bubble. We had someone who was a prostitute who got exiled to Brooklyn and then became a, a very wealthy landowner because Brooklyn was more or less unsettled at the time. Uh, we had someone who was a slave who was ordered put to death um, who then managed to somehow beat his death sentence and get deeded attractive land um, as one of the first um, land-owning people of color in this country. Um, and uh, we had a, a Jewish man who was who uh, won the right to open, I think, the first butcher shop in Manhattan. Um, and hearing each of these stories sort of bump up against each other, and they're not told in a super clear straightforward way because this is experimental theater but they're told with sort of overlapping narration and projection and movement and music um 
while there's also these flashes of Katie sort of trying to make sense of her uh, of her life in contemporary Manhattan that I thought was the least successful part of these. Um, except that it was, I think, um, I think that was sort of what, what the artist probably felt was needed as a, a way to get audiences into this t- past timeline, uh, which I don't, I, I could have done without. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was super interesting. It opened my eyes to, um, sort of lots of different narratives about the beginning of New York that some of which I had learned in high school and forgotten some of which I had certainly never heard before. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I thought it ended rather abruptly. Um, but as the first movement of a five movement piece, I would sort of forgive that except that it's so unlikely that anyone's going to get to see all five movements. Um, that, that, that sort of was a letdown. Although I know that the, the fifth movement, the one in Amsterdam is going to include some way of representing the four pieces that came before. And so I'm hoping that that will also somehow have some kind of like an online opening for those of us who care enough to want to trace where this goes. Um, at the performance I went to, the the artist uh, whose name uh, is Talia Chalef, um spoke a little bit afterwards too about, about her vision for the bigger piece. And it's interesting, the other four pieces aren't really created yet. Um, she's not sure that they're going to be theater pieces per se. They could be installations. They could be dance pieces. They could be any number of things. Although she did feel pretty confident that because movement is such an important part of telling a story of port cities, that movement will be in part of how each of these other pieces gets created. Um, I don't know. I just, I thought it was like really, really interesting. Like it, it, I, I was glad I saw it and I've been talking about it to people all week since, which um, you know, when you see as much theater as we do, it's rare that there's a show that I keep talking about after I've seen other shows since then. And this is one of those. So Jose and I actually saw this together. Uh, um, and so I have, I think it's so fascinating that you come from, you each have such different perspectives. Um, I probably lean, I definitely lean towards Jose's perspective on this. Um, and I have like so many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess just to give my initial response, like, first of all, I have no idea what Settlers of Catan is. So if I needed to have prior knowledge of that game to understand what was going on, I came in with none and thus I understood none. I mean, I don't know that you needed it. I think it helped. It just, I, I, I did not understand the show and I do not know what that game is. Um, so there's that. Um, I agree that the least successful part of this was the contemporary narrative. Um, the relationship of the contemporary and the historical narrative was not clear to me at all. I only knew there was a connection because I had read about it previously. I think it would have helped if the narration that we heard on the ferry happened much later in that track. Like the narration is a very short piece of a 25 minute track and it happens pretty early in the journey. Yeah. Um, the historical narratives really sparked my interest. There was a moment, I love the way you stated this, Jose, about sort of traveling back in time via the ferry. Um, I thought the music was lovely. I thought the monologue on the ferry that we listened to via our headphones was beautiful. And, and there was a moment when we were sitting in this barge off the, co- of the you know, the in Red Hook, where I was just struck by the history that, that we were being told and that we were in the place where it was happening. 
and also how little I know about that. I was raised in the West. We didn't, I mean, we have like the basics of the, you know, founding of the country, but like the minutia of New Amsterdam and stuff, I know almost nothing about that. And I was, my curiosity was totally sparked and I wanted to go buy a like history of New York book and read it. Um, I thought the movement while interesting to look at, it did not serve any narrative purpose for me. I it could not discern the historical narrative I was being given. Um, you know, with the, the combination of the movement and the spoken parts, and it just, it made no sense to me. I could not understand it. So for me, it was failing on both an educational and an entertainment level. I was really, really struggling with that. So. I want to suggest that narrative is not the only measure for whether or not movement belongs in a piece. I completely concur. Um, I completely <laughs> concur. However, I do think in this piece it was supposed to serve a narrative function. I, I think because otherwise, what was the narrative? How was the narrative being communicated? I, I it wasn't that, strictly through speaking it because they were leaving so much out. I don't know that narrative was the primary concern here. Um, I think the movement to me was about it was about setting tone. It was about a lot of it was very mechanized in a way to suggest that you know each of these people are sort of part of a bigger system and the way that systems created the systems that we now have. Um, I mean, it, 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 the movement was probably my least favorite part of all the different elements. So like, I don't want to defend it too strongly, but I, I do think it, uh, I think it served a purpose. Um, but again, like I, maybe you're using the word narrative differently than I am interpreting it, but I don't, I don't think this meant to tell a story with a beginning, middle and end, or even a story with a beginning and middle. I think this meant to open up exploration of these people, these systems, these, um, these economic forces that, um, that both shaped early Manhattan and also fed into this international, trading uh system i'm just gonna keep using the same words over again <laughs> um you know that that drove the the world economy 300 400 years ago you know there there are references to the triangle trade um there were, it was you know the again like if you if you had never learned about the tulip bubble which was like a major event in Dutch history that had major repercussions for the settling of Manhattan, then I could see like a whole section of the show being totally um, impenetrable. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like part of adulthood for me is being constantly surprised at how different the things we learn in high school are. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Like um, I, I, it was clear also like at the talk back that I attended that um, the, like the artist at one point, asked like how many in the audience were familiar with settlers of Catan and only me and my friend raised our hands which was like very telling not only about like points of access to the play but also some of the assumptions that the artist may have been starting with that did not bear out and this is a board game it's a board game it's, okay. a, it's a board game it's it's sort of like risk i think although i've never played risk um except that instead of being geopolitics it's like you are in a you're um the board, the board is an island and you each have a certain number of resources and you have to like claim different tracts of land and deploy resources on them, whether it's like farming or manufacturing or whatever, in order to like become the most successful settler. Um, so, it, so 
<laughs> things I did not think we would be discussing on today's podcast include how to play settlers. Well, it is, it's this kind of game. All right, let's give Jose a chance. <laughs> no, it's it's so interesting that you're saying that about the board game because you're obviously so excited about it. And I think that that works perfectly as like a metaphor for the show. It's like sitting and watching people play a board game that you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and it's boring. Like, you know, like if there's people playing Monopoly at a party, you just leave and go get a drink or whatever. <laughs> but also like, I really disagree about the point of like the narrative not being important because then we wouldn't have Katie. And I feel that uh, Ms. Uh, Chalef is being completely condescending then to audiences if she distrusts us so much that we're getting on that ferry and she still needs Katie to guide us and then just like forget about us once once we get to the to the barge because I mean the show probably would have been more successful in a wider non-settlers of Catan uh, perspective for uh, if it had been completely educational and if it had been just about history and Katie was not only unnecessary but also she was uh uh I don't know. She was, she was just, yeah, like just not, just, she was just I would very say maybe misleading. underutilized more than unnecessary. I think the idea was that she is someone of our generation grappling with this history, particularly as it pertains to her family. I don't think that really played out successfully, but I think that's what I, I took away from certainly the, the way that she was introduced on the narrative and, and the few places where she sort of poked through in the show itself. How do you think the show would work with tourists then? Because, I mean, I'm not from I don't the think the show has any interest and, in tourists. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I, I didn't, I, I'm not from America. So, like, it was very confusing to me because I was like, why would I be interested in all of this? And what you're saying, I mean, about, you know, like growing up here and being a New Yorker. Well, I mean, I didn't grow up here. I've only been a New Yorker for three years. Um, but you're from the Northeast Corridor. Right, right. Um Oh, this has Nathaniel Ryan in it. Sorry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. We are way over time. So let's talk about what things we have coming up that we are excited to see. I'm finally going to see the color purple and I'm super, Yay. super excited. Um, I'm also going to see a play called Gory from Life Jacket Theater. That's at Here Arts. Uh, I'm going to see Bible Study for Heathens, which is the new show by the New York Neo-Futurists, which I'm very, very excited for. Um, and I'm seeing Pure Gint at Classic Stage with Jose. Cool. Uh, I'm seeing uh, The Father and the Dollhouse, Doll's House, I mean, at, at Theater for a New Audience. Uh, I'm seeing something called Colin Camo at, at Rattlestick. I'm seeing Hadestown at uh, NYT Double. And I'm so excited. Musicals, yay. Uh, and then uh, I'm also seeing a bunch of other, uh, uh, not a bunch of other, but two MTC shows, uh, Rubens of Civilization and uh, Incognito. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. or Nick? Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, ditto all of that, with the exception of those last two. I am going to catch up on theater. This past week has been busy. I'm going to see Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> I'm going to see The Humans. Ah. Finally, now that I have a free moment, I'm going to see The Color Purple. So, yes, I'm going to break out the piggy bank and actually spend that $40, $50 per ticket uh, on TDF for these Broadway tickets. Great. Thank you all. That's a wrap. Good team. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or disagreements, you can find us all on Twitter. 
David is at It's D. Levy. Oren is at Oren Squire. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen, and I'm at Lindsay Barons. We'll see you in two weeks. Folio Group. Theatrical Media.